Hello and welcome to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. I'm Martha Sutsui Billens, and today's episode is with Yula Hawa. Yula is originally from Siwu Village in Sichuan, China, and is a passionate advocate for her community's traditions and language. Growing up as a yak herder, Yula developed an interest in linguistics during high school. This interest fueled her to create the trilingual book, Warming Your Hands with Moonlight, aimed at preserving local history and folklore. Taking her dedication a step further, Yula journeyed to the United States from the Himalayas to study linguistics at the University of Oregon. Currently, she is pursuing a master's in computational linguistics at the University of Washington, hoping to merge her linguistic knowledge with modern technology to contribute to the preservation of her community's cultural heritage. I love it when I have the chance to interview someone who is working on their own language, and I know listeners will be interested in Eula's story of first getting involved with language documentation as a speaker consultant working with a linguist, to now coming full circle and doing her own work as a researcher on her language, Chushkyev. If you're interested in hearing more insider linguists' experiences, I've been lucky enough to interview researchers working on their own languages in every season of Field Notes, but season three exclusively featured insider linguists, so be sure to check out that season if you would like. Also, as I've mentioned online and in the show notes, this is the final season of Field Notes, and there will be just a couple episodes left in this season. The latest Patreon bonus episode went into why Field Notes is wrapping up in more detail, so if you're interested in hearing more about that, you can check out the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Field Notes podcast. Bonus episodes are available to patrons at the $5 tier and above. Thank you so much, Yola, for coming on to Field Notes. I'm really excited to talk to you. Yeah, I'm excited too. This is great. A nice break and exciting thing to do during my finals week. So I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I appreciate you taking time in such a busy season. Um, Can you introduce yourself and share where your interest in linguistics first came from? Uh, yes, absolutely. So uh, my name is Yula, and I am from a tiny village uh, in the Himalayas. The province in China is called Sichuan Province, and uh, we are about like 500 people in the village, so a tiny village. Um, it's a autonom- Tibetan autonomous region. And uh, I grew up basically herding yak and sheep uh, with my pastoralist family in the mountains of this rural region before I started school. I am ethnically Tibetan. Uh, Linguistically, my mother tongue is called Chostyep, which is mutually uh, unintelligible with uh, the other like mainstream Tibetan dialects. And uh, graduated from U of O with a linguistic degree and now doing my master's at UW here in computational linguistics. So now that we got those out of the way, (laughs) my interest in linguistics, um, I think, is deeply rooted. My First of all, I think my personality, I am pretty outgoing and talkative. Um, so growing up, I, I mean, we grew up in a multilingual environment, so you're exposed to a lot of different um, groups of people uh, with a different linguistic background. Uh, so you kind of have to be outgoing and learning um, these different dialects and pockets of language uh, communities. Um, so I would say I just kind of really went into that. I was like, oh, this is exciting. I I want to learn more. And I think as I um, went to school and got exposed to larger communities, so as I mentioned earlier, we are linguistically kind of unique within the Tibetan culture. 
Uh, so, which makes us uh, linguistically marked in some sense. Uh, so they would say, oh, you're Tibetan, but you don't speak Tibetan. Because for a lot of them, if you don't speak the mainstream Tibetan dialects, which one, like we have three mainstream Tibetan dialects, they would be like, oh, uh, what are you speaking? You're speaking some language that we don't understand and you get a little um, excluded or treated differently or discriminated uh, to, some, uh, to some extent. So as a teenager, as an adolescent, I just kind of like, well, uh, I wonder why. <laughs> I, I even question like, oh, I, I wonder why I don't speak Tibetan. I am Tibetan. So I should be speaking the standard Tibetan. So there were these kind of uh, doubts and frustrations and confusions. Um, so that kind of really fueled me when I later um, was interacting with some uh, PhD students who were doing field uh, work in linguistics in rural uh, regions of where I was from. So I was, uh, she was an American, she was doing her field work back there. So I got kind of exposed to learning about IPA, International Phonetic Alphabet, and got exposed to the concept of doing field work and things like that. And it was my first time, I remember very vividly that she helped me to write my name in IPA. And I was like, oh, wow, this is so exciting because, you know, I, I'm, I come from an oral culture. Um, so having my language written visually, it was very kind of stimulating. And I was, oh, it's possible to write my name down as how it's pronounced. Um, and also, I was writing some uh, simple phrases from my language and explaining to her about my language. And that kind of got me really interested, like, wow, I never knew that our language could be written down. So I just kind of like, oh, wow, I want to learn more about this thing called linguistics. <laughs> and to be honest, uh, at the time, it's not like, no, I had never heard anybody uh, in my circles uh, studying linguistics. So I actually had no idea what linguistics was and what I was go going to be studying. But I was like, ah, it's something related to languages. It must be fun. Uh, so I just uh, applied for a linguistics degree at U of O, um, not knowing exactly what linguistics was. Yeah. That's so interesting. Why did you pick U of O in Eugene? Did you have some kind of connection to that university? Or, I mean, I know that they have um, a language documentation program there, but what, like, was there something specific that drew you to it? Yeah, I think first of all was the this PhD student um, that she was doing field work in uh, around the Tibetan plateau. So she was a PhD student from U of O. So that was my first connection and uh, my uh, inspiration to linguistics, uh, if you will. And uh, second of all, um, the uh, so I speak a Tibeto-Burman language. So one of the, at the time, was the department head of linguistics, Scott DeLancey. He is, uh, like, pretty big in the realm of uh, Tibeto-Burmanist. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I just kind of like, wow, this is double cool. I know someone there already, and I know someone there who cares about um, the language that I speak. Uh, so I just, yeah, uh, applied there, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. So you you kind of knew like, oh, like I'm interested in them and they're interested in me. There's already a, a like program and like captive audience for Tibeto-Burman languages at U of O. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
So I, I have so many questions about like your childhood and how you grew up. So is the you said there's 500 people in the village. So within the village, within those 500, lots of different languages. Is that right? Or everyone is speaking one dialect, and then on top of that, there's also the stand standard Tibetan.、Mm-hmm. So within the village is the、uh, we mostly primarily speak Chostyab. Uh, but、uh, on top of that, as you said, ethnically we're Tibetan, so we also grow up speaking Tibetan alongside. Because so how we call our actually lang- the language, we have two two way distinction. So we have down in the valley are the farmer people. So we call farmer's tongue, which is the one that I speak, and then. Up in the mountains is、uh, where the nomads, where the herders live. They speak the one of the、um, standard Tibetan dialects called Amdo Tibetan. So you have close interaction with these two. So you basically, yeah, either、uh, either community will、uh, grow up speaking both of the languages, and、uh, yeah, and then. If you go off to school or a monastery, that's the traditional schooling system. Then you learn more like the sophisticated Tibetan and written Tibetan, and yeah, all of that. And then Mandarin Chinese as well. Yeah. By like sophisticated Tibetan, is that kind of like the standard language or? Yes,、yeah, standard and written written language. Yeah. Ah.、Uh, okay. Okay. I see. So the villages, it's like. Because of the geography, the valleys uh, and uh, little pockets of communities. If you travel, like let's say thirty or forty kilometers up or down, they're going to speak a, I would say, a pretty different dialect or language. How you ever you define it?、Um, some of them, if you go further than like fifty kilometers, then you won't be able to understand completely. Okay. So there's、uh, yeah, pretty large、um, like language divi- diversity within yeah that region. That's cool. Is there、uh, much debate about like dialect or language in this area, or is it is it kind of not such a hot topic? Where where I work, using the word dialect is kind of、uh, like people get kind of upset if you call a language a dialect because they're. They, well, one the mutual intelligibility is also very low,、um, but also like the, they have been kind of、uh, branded with this term dialect is so long, so people are like really fighting, like no, like we speak a separate language,、um, and it's quite contentious to say dialect. Is that is that like a thing over there or not so much? Yeah, that's、uh, interesting that you ask it because it it might be quite the opposite、uh, case. Oh, really? <laughs> For the Tibetan communi- communities, because、um, one, we are one ethnic group, and there are, you know different levels of struggle to maintain this unity.、Um, <laughs> so、uh, a lot of Tibetan communities, like mine, for example, who speak a very linguistically different. Language, I still I hesitated because I think coming from a community and a native speaker of that, I was always like, "Oh, come on, what are you talking about? We speak Tibetan. Don't、um, try to you know divide us or don't try to make a new language."、Um, uh, so I, depending on the audience that I interact with. Uh, my actually answer to say my mother tongue Chostya is it is it a an independent language or is it a dialect of Tibetan? So I I'm actually actually I still struggle with how I present that because a lot of people communities、uh, like mine who are linguistically unique. Um, still wants to maintain this larger Tibetan identity,、uh, so people really struggle to like. Oh, we're linguistically 
unique, but we're Tibetans, come on. So um, let's just say this is a dialect of Tibetan. Um, <laughs> I see, I see. And then also, I mean, the whole Tibet or the Tibetan plateau region where most majority um, people are Tibetans, that region has always been kind of regarded as a monolingual region until pretty recent, um, like in the past maybe five or six years, then people started like, oh, actually look at this. There's large like linguistic diversity that we ignored. Um, actually, one of my former English teacher at the time, uh, he's an anthropologist. Uh, he documented there may be around 50, 60 languages on the Tibetan plateau spoken by these uh, Tibetan communities. Uh, so that came kind of out of shock and uh, not really <laughs> some, there were some pushbacks uh, within the Tibetan communities like, oh, who is this person? Um, <laughs> why he is saying that way. Uh, so it's a still, that is to say, it's a still a controversial uh, topic of, yeah, saying language versus dialect. Yeah, yeah, I see. Yeah, that's really interesting. So you went to U of O, you did your, so you did your undergraduate degree there, and then now you're doing your master's degree in linguistics, right? Yeah, at UW in Seattle. In Seattle? Are you at Seattle? Yeah, yeah, Seattle, yeah. And are you doing linguistic fieldwork right now for your project? Or like what, what is your current research looking like? Uh, currently, I am not actively doing fieldwork per se as, um, yeah, the con constraints of me being out of um, my community for a while. But when pre-pandemic, I went back home and I lived in a city that's closer to my hometown called Chengdu, which is about six hours drive up in the mountains um, to my home village. And uh, within that three years, I was maintaining some uh, social media accounts or blogs, if you will. And uh, mostly I was... Um, so I did a lot of field work uh, starting around my high school age. So I had a lot of material that I just like, oh, wow, I have all these um, folk tales, folk songs, uh, all these uh, stories that people told me. How can I uh, make use of that? So I just started this blog um, on a social media account, which is very popular in China, called WeChat. And uh, I started to uploading some of these stories, editing them, and uh, make some short um, description of what's happening, uh, both in uh, Tibetan Chinese, so that I can reach a wider audience and uh, kind of uh, popularize the language and the culture among especially the younger generations. Yeah, so that was mostly what I was doing alongside. I was also, I've been working on an orthography design for the language, uh, which is based on the existing Tibetan alphabets, and then um, adding some uh, more uh, letters, yeah. Yeah, wow, that's really interesting. Um, what... So, so you you have been doing fieldwork for a long time on the consultant side as well, right? Like you said, you met a PhD student who was doing fieldwork, and and now you're the researcher. So, how when it all started was, um, so when I attended an English training program, uh, when I finished middle school, and I knew that I didn't want to do the high school in China because. That is three years of you preparing for this uh, standardized test called Gaokao. It's like a college entrance exam. So I just uh, didn't want to do that. So I went off to a different province to study English at age 17. And then through that program, 
we started doing these mini field work or quote unquote homework because uh, at the time when I would go back in the village with my recorder and camera and people had villagers they were like what are you doing you're a student so we don't understand what you're doing so I just had a hard time explaining what I was doing so I just said oh these are my homework uh, given by my teachers. Um, for the longest time, I just uh, kind of presented them as homework, these mini field work. We would just collect oral traditions, um, interview people about their life accounts and things like that. That, I think during those years, my passion for language and cultural, like cultural documentation really uh, fueled up. I was like, wow, this is so exciting. I never knew that there is a story about the, for example, the name of the village, how it came to be. Um, so Seovu is the name of my village which uh, there's a legend story around that, just where there was a Tibetan warrior. Suyo in the local dialect means it's like a millstone, big millstone, where you sharpen your uh, swords before you uh, go off to a, like a war or something. So in the 19, early 1990s, uh, that stone got destroyed because there was a massive road construction. So I grew, in, I grew up not really knowing that stone, that big stone. Um, so I just didn't know how the village, village name came to be, but the elders were telling me these stories. I was like, wow, uh, I now know the name of the village and how, like, what's the story behind it? And like small things like that, that just, uh, I would, so I collect these stories and then I go back to this English training program and retell these stories to my uh, classmates and teachers in English. So this was like a practice English and then practice doing field work. But through that, I just, I feel like I found something that was, I just felt confident about telling my uh, my uh, stories and my community presenting them to uh, a wider audience I think that really just uh, gave as a teenager I just felt like oh I found I don't know I found a purpose to my life or something like that uh, so that was yeah me just uh, starting with these quote-unquote homework and uh, finding a passion that I've continued till this day, which has been almost 18 years. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Are you still working with folks, folk tales and musicology, like folk, folk songs, or have you moved on to a different area of interest for your studies now? I think it's a constant uh, work. I, I don't think I've moved on and shifting gears but uh, um, so one of the interesting thing about my community is uh, as I mentioned the language is very different but all the songs were sang in uh, Tibetan uh, one of the mainstream Tibetan dialect so no songs were sang in the local language except some working songs which are kind of like half vocal it, they don't have a lot of like lyrics or meanings um, those were only sang in the local language so uh, uh, i think a few years ago when i started doing this mother tongue videos i just um, translated a very popular tibetan song into the local language and then I had one of my Tibetan friends playing the um, mandolin and I with my not so good singing voice <laughs> I just sang uh, that song uh, in the local language recorded video and then I sent those videos back uh, to my community and I just remember the reaction it was just 
amazing. People are just like, wow, we didn't know that you can actually sing in our mother tongue. Now, like one of my cousins, she was saying, oh, now, because the song was a, like a toast-giving song. So she was like, oh, when I go to the parties now, I can just sing in my native language. How cool is that? Uh, so she was just like, she almost like burst into tears. She was like, wow, this is so cool. Um, so doing, yeah, kind of a little more innovative work like that and trying to boost people's um, confidence and uh, trust in the language uh, has been kind of my work of trying to influence um, people's attitude because I think ultimately that's what this, what will make people decide whether or not they want to continue speaking a language. Um, so yeah, doing a lot of these uh, short mother tongue videos, yeah. That's really interesting. I was going to ask you what is the reaction of your community in your hometown to you working on your language? Because I know that some people I've interviewed on the podcast uh, who are either heritage speakers or native speakers of the language that they're working on, there's a wide range of reactions and feelings about it from their own communities. Like sometimes people are really supportive and Sometimes the the family or the elders are kind of like, oh, like that's that's not like a good use of your time or that's not like what you should be working on. Like we we sent you away to university to do something else. So it's really nice to hear that your community is like really supportive of your work. Yeah, absolutely. From these um, almost <laughs> nonsense homework Starting from there, people, I think a lot of people just at the beginning were kind of indifferent about me going around and doing this work. Uh, but as I was able to bring something back into the community, so I was um, recording this and I made documentary films that this was back in 2007 and eight. And then I would carve them into DVDs. Um, and uh, it, I, I remember at the time, maybe pe people were just get, getting their DVD players in the village. TVs were relatively new, not like new, new. But um, so I just kind of like, oh, it would be cool to have people on, like, on TV and they can watch these. And it was a really big hit. People, I mean... First of all, people were making fun of each other. They, they were like, oh, look at you. Why do you look so funny in this video? <laughs> like, I mean, that's what people do. Part of the, that's part of the culture, kind of making fun of each other to show that you love them, which is kind of funny. But um, I remember that people were just like, wow, this is so cool. We, 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 it's for our first time to see myself my peers uh, on a TV screen. Uh, so they were like, wow, this is a good record. And I remember 10 years later, people still kept those DVDs and they said there were, you know, maybe family members who passed away, um, elder people who passed away, or there were, you know, um, a festival where people dressed up and doing dance and singing. So they would show it to uh, people when they have guests uh, coming from outside of the village. They're like, oh, look at this cool thing that we did 10 years ago. So people, it's like a people like, oh, kind of sh share and showcase to other groups of people. Um, so I think that also gave them a lot of like, wow, this is cool like something that um it's like tangible that they can yeah they can uh get a grasp on yeah 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 that's really cool how is the uh like generational transmission of choskev like are parents still passing it on to their new babies or um obviously like you are very young um but like are like the next generation speaking the language or is it is there any language shift what is it like 
Um, so to the larger degree, I would say the village, if you're in the village, yes, that's the only language you will speak. And uh, especially if you were born in the village, you're likely going to be fluent uh, in the language. But recent years, uh, past five, six years, there has been like people are moving to towns. Uh, there's a, like a major, I would say, livelihood style shift. So people were, you know, traditionally people were farmers and nomads, I was uh, saying. But now people are kind of abandoning that livelihoods and going to towns and doing um, seasonal work. Um, I, I don't know, getting jobs at restaurants and things like that. And then alongside, they're going to move their families and then raise their kids in the towns and cities. So these kids will interact with other kids who don't speak the language, even though they might, the parents might speak the language in the, inside the home, but it's only very limited to that home. So they don't have a whole community that speaks uh, the language. So I would say even just comparing myself to my younger brother, who is 14 years younger, uh, I grew up like mostly in the village, but he spent a lot of time in the boarding schools uh, with a lot of different other kids. And he didn't have that much time of like coming back into the village and uh, spending time, I don't know, herding and uh, uh, living in the village. So I feel like he code switches a lot compared to me. When I speak, I mostly either speak in Chinese with him or I speak in my mother tongue, Chostya. But when he speaks to me, he just, yeah, he code switches almost like 30% Chinese and 70% um, uh, Chostya. So just within one generation, it, there is that kind of shift. Um, so it's, it's pretty scary, yeah. And parents, of course, their concern is, can my kids make a living? Can he or she get a good job? Um, so which oftentimes requires you to go off further and learn a different language and learn a different, yeah, live in a different culture. So yeah, it's definitely, there's a break in the transmission between generations. So are there are there other villages um, that speak Choskev or is it just your 500 person village? Well, the, to, to just start with uh, of how it started. And uh, so the language was not even recognize or recognize in a very general sense, um, even not identified or documented around like 25 years ago. So the language was not known. And the first account was documented by a Chinese linguist. Uh, um, wrote, she wrote a grammar and uh, where the language was referred to as Labrong. So when I started learning about linguistics and when I started doing field work, some people would tell me like, oh, so you speak Labrong? Uh, and I'd be scratching my head. Uh, I kind of, you know, I, I, I was a teenager, so I just like, oh, whatever you tell me. And especially these are people who are, you know, doing linguistic who've been doing linguistics for like years and who are kind of researchers so I was kind of too embarrassed to say that oh I don't even know what that term means <laughs> so I kind of went along and I so I published a book uh, doing all these mini field work uh, during my high school time 
called Warming Your Hands with Moonlight. So it's a collection of these oral traditions. Um, in that book, I referred the language as Labrong. So later on, when I came to Yovo and things, I just like, wow, this is not right. I don't know what this term means. And none of the villagers back home can relate to this term. So there's something wrong. So along with my mentor uh, at the time, uh, he is a researcher who does work in my language or neighboring dialect. So we kind of like, oh, we need to change this. So we had to uh, kind of like, oh, this is this uh, term doesn't mean mean anything. So we need to change the uh, uh, change the name uh, to Chostya, which which is like a geographical name of the region. Okay which most people will recognize some of the, you know, if you go to the local town, some of the restaurants, hotels, tea houses uh, have this name. So this is a term that people just kind of know. <laughs> uh, but at the time, yeah, there's uh, uh, just starting off with really zero. And uh, she, in her book, she recorded about, that was in 2003, uh, the book um, where first the language was being documented said around 10,000 uh, speakers. Okay. And uh, I would say now maybe roughly seven or 8,000 speakers. Um, roughly meaning, yeah, just... Because uh, it, it's, a, it's a pretty hard to uh, calculate because some yeah right yeah 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 it's hard yeah I always ask that question but it's also kind of like in a way it's almost like oh why bother because like well what is a speaker like how do you count you know it's uh I, I acknowledge that it's a difficult question to answer yeah so I never also really bothered to kind of go in and uh go into each village maybe there are like uh, I would say three or four pockets of communities who speak um, this language that's all within the uh, 25 to 30 kilometers uh, radius um. so when you are in your village or when you are doing field work and collecting data do you have a set routine for like who you want to talk to and what kind of data you want to collect, or do you just take it day by day? Um, I think when I was doing my field, when I just started off, I had a set of people, or I even went in like, oh, I want to interview this person about this thing. I want to interview this person about that thing. Um, I had... Because I kind of just had pre-determined <laughs> set of things that I wanted to collect. But I think as years went on, I really learned to be okay with not having a, a clear target like that. Um, I think that comes from the fact that I am a member of the community so to start with it's kind of really weird to going in and ask people about certain things because we have some common knowledge and I'm just asking them to repeat so they felt strange they're like you know this already why are you asking me and we have these awkward moments of like Oh, but I want you to, I want to record you. Uh, so I need you to pretend that you don't know me. Uh, so I had, like, I had a few interactions like that, which made me uncomfortable, which made them uncomfortable. <laughs> um, so I think in the later years, I just really go in and try to understand and try to have a conversation without that intention of like, oh, I need to 
get this on the record or like recorder or I need to yeah I need to like document this so I learned to or I sometimes I forget <laughs> to turn it on which is I, I I think it's a good thing I liked I liked not being able to half present <laughs> uh, I liked um people that just tell me stories off of like that common ground that we have and not needing to like pretend to a recorder I think people really enjoyed it so I think in the later years I would do a mixture of um I'm still I want to learn about what's because I don't spend a lot of time in the village so there's a lot of catching up at the beginning um, a lot of um, you know warming up or a lot of um, gossips or I don't know these uh, you know small talks and I try really hard to kind of like engage in to those things uh, pe because people are really excited to share about like this new house that they built how much time it took and um, who helped them and all of that things um, I just kind of skipped in my first you know field work sessions I just kind of like went in I was like okay today I, I want you to tell me the story of this king uh, who I don't know defeated his enemy or I want you to tell me your story about um, hunting bears or something like that so I went in just kind of like here's one two three four I need <laughs> please tell me yeah <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Are there other challenges that you've faced as an insider linguist that you think people who come in from the outside don't necessarily have to think about or consider? Yeah, I think first thing was uh, when I started off, as I was saying, you know, having your language written down and having your language, I don't know, almost like dissecting the language uh, parsing them and I don't know think of your language in terms of fragments in in terms of phonetic units uh, thinking about I think that just really threw me off as much as it was exciting I just felt like I oh my gosh I'm so cruel to the language I'm like just tearing this language apart and looking at one tiny consonant, one tiny vowel, and what it does, and how it's different, and how it's similar. I think that idea, I think up till now, I think maybe that's one thing that I still kind of like, wow, with linguistics is coming from the background of a native speaker I still struggle to analyze my language in terms of these linguistic units is it because you feel like it's it's so clinical and it's not really like it's just looking at data it's not really looking at the people and it's somehow separating the culture from the language in a way or yes absolutely I think that's one part and also, I think the the biggest part is me kind of engaging into these kind of really, I don't know, scientific analysis and thinking, oh, how can this benefit my community? I'm still oriented towards like, oh, how can I give it back to the community? How can I make it useful uh, for the community members. So I think it's a balance of that makes me kind of sometimes like, oh, I think that was my decision of not at the time when I graduated from UVO, I was wondering like, oh, do I want to do a PhD? Do I want to write a grammar of my language? Because that's, I think, most of <laughs> most PhD students at my um, department at UVO were doing. And I just couldn't see myself 
spending the next six, seven years working on writing a thick book, grammar book, which probably will sit on someone's shelf. Maybe the community members even wouldn't know or wouldn't have access to because it will be written in English. Um, so I kind of made a decision like, oh, I don't think this is how I want to invest my time and an energy into for the next few years. Yeah. 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 That makes total sense. So I want to talk about proverbs. Um, I think that's really interesting. How, what, what kind of work are you doing with proverbs right now? And I was wondering if you, if you didn't mind, if you would like share a, a couple proverbs with us and explain them. Cause I, I just think like oral traditions are so fascinating. Mm -hmm. So that's a great question. Let me see if I can recall. I mean, the, the name of the book, um, warming your hands with moonlight. So this comes from a proverb. And there's a story behind how this name came to be. Uh, so I, after I got trainings in how to use a recorder and camera and doing field work, I kind of went off getting really like pumped and like, ah, oh, this is going to be exciting. I know exactly what I'm doing. I just need to record people, um, telling folk tales, proverb, tongue twisters, all of that, this should be pretty easy. So I, one evening, I just went off with my recorder and I saw one of the neighboring uncles who was doing some work in uh, his yard. And I just said, hey, uncle, I need some, I need you to tell me some proverbs. Uh, I'm doing this uh, schoolwork thing that where I need to record proverbs. And uh, he just said, Oh, Malo, So basically, I didn't understand what he said. <laughs> I, just th I just thought he was speaking some nonsense. And I kind of got a little frustrated. I was like, but I want you to tell me a proverb. But he kind of shied away. So I went back home really frustrated. I, t I'm, I talked to my mom. I said, do you think that uncle is crazy? I asked him to tell me some proverbs. And he said, which literally, literal meaning is warming your hands with moonlight. So mom paused for a second and she said, well, there is a proverb for you. There we go. I was like, what? <laughs> so I just kind of like I didn't know I was in shock I was like which 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 part is a proverb <laughs> <laughs> uh, so basically mom had to explain it, I mean obviously you can't really warm your hands with the moonlight so for him is like a polite way to refuse me to say like okay um, and there might be other people who can maybe tell you, um, can give you proverbs, but I'm not the, I'm not the one, um, I can't warm your hands. <laughs> um, so that just really, I was embarrassed slash, I just was left like speechless because I just went in and like uh, I was like whoa this I, I got this and then I was so ignorant and uh, completely overlooked <laughs> um, that he had given me a proverb so I kind of decided to name my book warming your hands with moonlight just kind of a reminder of how ignorant I can be in terms of, you know, analyzing or understanding my own culture. Um, so it, it's always been a constant reminder as well. Uh, when I go into the communities, I don't try not to um, take um, grant for granted of things that people tell me or things that people know, uh, because they always surprise me. 
Um, so yeah, this is, this is one proverb that I can think of top of my head. That's such a nice story because it's like, not only did he give you a proverb, he gave it to you in like the correct context as well. I think, yeah, me going in as like a member as well as someone who's trying to do research and analyze the uh, language and the culture, um, there's, you know, good side and bad side because I just, because it just never clicked that was a proverb to me. So I just kind of like, oh, he's speaking nonsense. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. That's so nice. Um, Yeah. Okay, well, we're almost at time. Is there anything that I should ask you that I haven't asked you yet? Anything you want to say more about before we wrap up? I am working for the Endangered Languages Project as a language revitalization mentor. Uh, So we offer uh, this one-on-one online mentor sessions for people who want to, I don't know, chat about um, their language work with us um, and their journey and their concerns. So I would like to maybe post a little advertisement to say, feel free to schedule an appointment uh, with me if you want to talk to me about anything that's um, related to language documentation or revitalization. And uh, we can leave a link um, down here. So yeah, yeah, I think that's it. Right. And where, so actually I was going to say, and where can people find you? But you just said, (laughs) um, yeah, we'll, we'll include the link in the show notes so that people can reach out to you if they would like to, if they're interested in learning more about your work or seeing the content that you've posted on social media or YouTube, is any of that available over here or? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, some of the video clips that I mentioned, Uh, I uploaded on my YouTube channel, uh, which I haven't been updating for a few years, (laughs) but I I can leave those links as well. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Thank you so much, Eula. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah. It's been lovely. I'm always uh, excited and passionate about chatting this kind of stuff. So yeah, looking forward to meeting some people uh, in these uh, mentor sessions, if you will. Yeah, if I, I would be really happy to talk to you about anything that I mentioned uh, here or beyond. Amazing. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. This podcast is hosted and produced by Martha Satsui Billens with production help from Laura Satsui. Claire Gaughan is our editor and Luca Dinu is our transcriptionist. Our music is by Lobo Loco, and our logo is by Eville Designs. If you have fieldwork experience to share, email us at fieldnotespod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lingfieldnotes. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to follow and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Also, consider becoming our patron on Patreon to help keep our content ad-free. Thanks for listening. 